I have the privilege of uh, being involved in a world mission organization uh, called UFM. And uh, seven years ago, two single ladies in their 40s, based in Brazil, moved into a community based on the edge of a dump on a big city. And uh, this big dump, there was no processing, just the rubbish from this large city, was brought out in lorries and dumped. And a whole community of people, they're unregistered, and as far as the government were concerned, they didn't exist, lived on the edge of this dump in little shanty houses built from the rubbish of the dump. And the people would go in, I've seen pictures of uh, men and women and children, barefooted, climbing over the rubbish, and there's ravens and rats and everything just scavenging for food and for things to live on. And these two ladies moved in. And they bought a little piece of land just in the street. There's no drains in the streets. Um, We've got family members who've visited. And um, all the drug dealers and gangsters lived because this is a place where no police went. Seven years ago. And they started loving the people and sharing the gospel. And the first thing they did, they got some friends in the UK to send out a a container load of Wellington boots just so people could not cut their feet. Their legs were covered in sores. They ran a leg and foot clinic. They started teaching ladies how to cut hair. And they started uh, running children's clubs and sharing the gospel. They got held up by a gunpoint several times, and uh, but they carried on. And they had teams of people would come out in the summer and run children's clubs. And, and people's lives started to be changed. You can roll the clock forward. I, I saw a film this summer. And uh, they've built a, a nursery. They've built a school. They've built a sports center and a church. And that whole community has been transformed. The dump has been transformed. The city council have now transformed it into a waste processing centre and the people who used to scavenge are now employed on the dump. The drug dealers have moved out, the gangsters have moved out, the community's been transformed. People now want to move into that area because it's such a nice area. And this sports hall, huge sports hall, gets filled on a Sunday with people who have been transformed by the power of the gospel. Seven years. Amazing. And I've seen it unfold. I just couldn't believe that that would happen. But we have a great God. And that power of the gospel to transform lives and to transform communities. Eleven years ago, we had the privilege of being involved in planting a church in Leicester. And our prayer and our desire, just in a little way, was that that church would be an Acts 2 church. That was our prayer. Because when you come to Acts chapter 2, it's the birth of the church, the hope of the world, the power to transform lives. And it's radical. It's a radical, society-changing church that emerges in this chapter. We're going to look at it, and we're going to look at four areas. And the first one is this, the moment, the beginning of the church. And uh, uh, it's a Sunday. Uh, How do we know it's a Sunday? Well, uh, it was the Feast of Pentecost. 
The Feast of Pentecost was held 50 days after the Feast of the First Fruits. Are you following me? And the Feast of the First Fruits was held the day after the Passover. So the Passover was on the Sabbath, and the next day was the Feast of the First Fruits. That's the day Jesus rose, and that feast was a picture of Jesus being the first fruits. And then 50 days after that day, so that's seven, day, seven weeks plus one day, which would bring you, seven weeks would bring you to the Saturday, the Sabbath. Seven weeks plus one day would bring you to a Sunday. So it's a Sunday. And uh, his, it's ten days since Jesus has left them. And they're all together, they're praying. Acts chapter 1 verse 14 tells us that. And finally, this day comes, Acts chapter 2 verse 1, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And amazing things start happening. Craig said about them speaking it, it lists at least 12 different languages. I spent six years (laughs) doing French. And when I went up to my next school, they said, don't bother, you know. Six years, and I can speak about six words. But in an instant, without going to language school, God gave them this ability, different, 12 different languages. And we enter this time of God doing amazing things. And lots of people, when they read the Bible, they think the Bible is just one long history of miracles. Uh, it's actually not. Our God is fully capable of doing miracles, and he does miracles in many different ways. But the times recorded in the Bible were specific times, and mainly to communicate a main thing. So if you think about it, you go back to the time of Moses. That was a period of miracles, wasn't it? And uh, we have all, um, all the plagues that come along, and God reveals himself. And then we go into the time in the wilderness when uh, the children of Israel are there and God provides water and food and, and he does amazing things. And then we come to the time of the prophets, Elisha and Elijah. And again, God is doing amazing things. And then the next major period is when Jesus comes and there's amazing period of miracles. Not not exclusively, there's other miracles, but these main periods. And then we come to the time of the apostles. And really the message God is communicating is this, that God is speaking. He's speaking through Moses. He's speaking as he gives the children of Israel the, the covenant. He's now speaking through the prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And then he's speaking through Jesus. And then speaking through the prophets. And it says here, verse 22, Peter, as he's preaching, he says, look, this man, this Jesus, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. He's attested, you know that it's God speaking because of this period of miracles. You see, those people who Peter was preaching knew the purpose of miracles, And God is saying, I'm now speaking through the apostles. And that's why we have the New Testament. Notice the importance of prayer. They've been together, these people, just as this, this moment 
when the church begins, they'll be meeting together and praying. And at the right time, at God's time, uh, this amazing event happens. And we need to be those who are praying people. We also need to be those who are, are trusting people. We're waiting for God's timing. And we're ready for God to work. We're praying people and are trusting people. Someone said this, without God, we cannot. And without us, he does not. It's interesting, isn't it? God has chosen to spread his message through us. Without God, we can't. Without us, he doesn't. And here we have this picture of the church emerging. We have a great God, don't we? We had a missionary come and speak at our church um, some time ago. And this missionary said he was traveling around in Turkey. And Turkey has been a really tough place for the gospel. And he came into a little fishing town. And he found, amazingly there, a church, a group of 12 Christians who were meeting together regularly. They had a Bible. And he went along and he, he was interested. He said, well, which missionary organization started you? And they said, missionary organization, what are they? <laughs> and he said, well, how did the church begin? And there was a young man who was part of the fishing crews that went out. But he decided to leave that and he went and joined the Merchant Navy. He joined, signed up for a ship that traveled the seven seas, uh, moving goods around the world. And one day in his travels, his ship docked in New York. Didn't speak English, but he went for a walk. And somebody put a rather nice book in his hand. Couldn't speak English, couldn't speak to the person, but he thought it's a nice book. He put it in his coat pocket. And time passed by, and as he's traveling around, long nights on the ship, and he thought he would do an English correspondence course just to better himself. And you know where this is going. Because as he learned English, he started looking around the ship for things to read. And one day he discovered this book, and it was a gospel tract. And he read about the God who created the world, who died for him, who could set him free, and he gave his life to Christ. He got a Bible in his own language, and he started studying it, and then he got concerned for his family and friends back in his fishing town. So he packed up going in the merchant navy, and he went back and shared the gospel, and with no outside influence, there's a little church of 12 people. Amazing, isn't it? I've often thought about the person standing on the street corner in New York, yeah, can you imagine? You know, sometimes Christians are so encouraging to one another, aren't they? And uh, that person goes back, and uh, they, after a day out, and their Christian friends say, "Well, how did it go today?" Well, it was a bit tough. I don't know; it might not be like this, but it was a bit tough. Well, did you give many leaflets out? Well, not many. Well, how many did you give out? Well, I gave out one. Did you have a good conversation? Well, no, I didn't. Why not? Well, the person couldn't speak English. Well, what good was that? We have a great God, don't we? We have a God who can take a leaflet given in New York on a street corner who can start a church in Turkey. Isn't that amazing? And 
Here we see this beginning of the church. This church went from 120 people to 3,120 people in a day. We've got a mission coming up in Leicester. (laughs) Roger's speaking. So, Roger, we've got high hopes. Um, We need to be a praying people, don't we? Are you a praying person? Are you someone who's just saying, you know, I, I want to ask God to bless me, to reach people. I want to pray for individuals. We need to be spirit-filled. This didn't happen until the Lord worked in their lives. We need to be spirit-filled, and we need to be those who wait for God's timing. We're ready. We're praying. We're going out, but we're trusting in his timing as well. And those amazing events, just being on that street corner, at the right time, in the right place, to hand a leaflet. And, and that person will probably never know till they get to heaven, will they, how God used them. The second point is this. We want to look at the messenger, the man God uses. Verse 14, it tells us, but Peter standing with the eleven. And this amazing event, who was the man that God chose to use to do this? Wind the clock back 53 days. And you wind that clock back 53 days, and it's late at night, and Peter is categorically, vehemently denying that he is a follower of Jesus Christ. He insists he's not a follower. And yet God takes Peter and uses him to be the tool To bring 3,000 souls to Christ. I guess most of us have got friends who once followed Jesus. But now say they don't. Don't let's give up praying for them. Uh, Peter once denied that he was a follower of Jesus. And Peter's repented and he's been restored. And just a few weeks later, God is using him in this amazing way. I think it's interesting Peter didn't have to spend ten years giving the hymn books out, you know, on the door, before God could use him, could he? He was not second rate. He was not damaged goods. Um, I heard of a Dutch missionary who served the Lord in Iriot and Java with a Stone Age group of people. On one occasion, over 2,000 people were baptised. This is just about 40 years ago. And he himself was amazed at God's grace because during the war he joined the Hitler Youth and he personally was involved in many atrocities. And he said, I am thankful for the sheer profundity of God's grace. Not only did he save me, but he used me like this despite my past. Have you messed up? Have we messed up in our lives? We'll be encouraged. God specializes in restoring and using messed up people. Are we writing, writing others off? Be warned, God doesn't write others off. And then notice, Peter is no academic, but God uses him to reach academics. 
This city was like the Oxford and Cambridge all rolled into one. And here's a, here's a fisherman from Galilee. He was a, whoops, um, he was a guy that, you know, he wasn't an academic. This city was almost the center of religious culture in the world. The people who traveled here would have been most learned and, and this congregation would have been of academics. God takes a non-academic to reach academics. I think sometimes he has a great sense of humor, doesn't he? And you see, the key is that Peter was one who spent much time with Jesus. And he could share. Are you someone who spends much time in, in this book, in this word? So be encouraged. Don't write yourself off. God hasn't. Be warned. Don't write others off. God hasn't either. And don't judge spirituality by this world's standards. You know, it's not about how many degrees or how many GCSEs or A-levels or, or things like that. God can use. If we're academic, he can use us. And if we're not academic, he can use us. He takes people and he works through them. And then let's just have a look at the message. This has to be the greatest message to share. Verses 14 to 40. And you know, many people compare Peter's sermon with Paul's sermon on Mars Hill. And there are some amazingly striking differences between these two sermons. These two great sermons in the book of Acts. Peter is preaching to Jews. Paul is preaching to Gentiles. Peter quotes a lot of Bible verses. In fact, he he quotes three Old Testament passages. Paul doesn't quote any. In fact, what Paul quotes is from some non-Christian or non-Bible-based philosopher. And here we have a massive response on Peter's sermon. And then in Paul's sermon, it says there was a mixed response. Some wrote it off. Some said, well, it's very interesting, and some responded. And you get all kinds of comments on this. Some people say, well, obviously, Peter's sermon is the right sermon to preach because he had a much bigger response. And then you get other people say, well, actually, Peter was preaching to Jewish people. They were religious people. They knew the Bible. And um, so he was able to quote the scripture. Paul was preaching to Gentiles who didn't know the Bible. So he started with creation and Paul and Peter started with the Bible. And the society we live in is really a Paul, a Mars Hill society. So we need to preach like that. Um, I actually think the real point here is, number one, they both started where the people they were speaking to were. Peter takes them to the book of Joel, verse 16. And he said, what is happening? God said would happen. This is God's plan. Paul took them to creation and said, look, this is the world we made. it." They both started where people were. And we need to do that. We were down in the open air with the Young Life Group in Leicester. And the president of the Leicester University Atheist Society came up. And, uh, whoa. And they wanted us. They uh, kept saying, you know, what's, what's the Bible have to say about homosexuality? And they kept on like this. And in the end, I said to him, I said, look, is, 
Is this a genuine question or is it a bear trap? Now, he's not going to say it's a bear trap, is he? You know, so he said, it's a genuine question. So I said, okay. And we, we got into debate. I said, look, can I ask you a question? You've asked me lots of questions. Can I ask you a question? He said, uh, yeah, okay. I said, look, I'm not interested in time frame. I, I, time doesn't interest me too much. But could you just give me a process of how coal and oil got where it is? And uh, he said, well, he said, there was this glass here and over a million. I said, no, no, not interested in time. Just give me a process. I'm an engineer. And, of course, he really struggled because it's very difficult. Um, you know, a little glass here moving across a hillside. Um, if you do the calculations, the amount of coal we've got in the world, you'd have to have the whole world covered, well, more than the current landmass covered in mature trees to get the amount of coal that we currently know about in this world. You know, so a little glacier. And, and because we started where he was, we then went on to have a great conversation. I had a lady uh, sent to me along by my bank manager and uh, came along to talk about pensions. And uh, my bank manager said, look, I have to get this lady in to see so many people a week. Would you mind seeing her? So I said, that's yeah. fine. So she came along and she said, um, she's very, very polite. She said, Mr. Duffin, she said, can I ask you what arrangements you've made for retirement? So I said, uh, well, I don't think I've made any. <laughs> and so she went, I said, well, what's that mean? She said, well, she said, if I don't, if you don't mind me saying, she said, I think you're very foolish. I think you're very unwise. I said, could I ask you a question? <laughs> So she said, yes, because I think she was going to, she thought I was going to ask her, what arrangements have you made for your retirement? And then she'd say, well, I've got this pension plan and I've got this one and I've got this. So uh, I said, can I ask you a question? She said, yes, go ahead. I said, what arrangements have you made for after retirement? (laughs) She said, "Uh, I don't think I've made any. I went, (laughs) we had a great conversation. The point is, you know, we, we've got to connect where people are, haven't we? And that's what Peter did. Secondly, he takes them to Jesus. This is a great challenge. Sometimes with, with our apologetics, we focus so much on the apologetics, we do not take them to Jesus. Look at what he said, verse 22. He takes them to Jesus as God. Verse 23, he takes them to Jesus as our crucified saviour. Verse 24, and then 31 to 33, he takes them to Jesus as our resurrected Lord. We must take people to Jesus. It's no good saying, have you thought about coal and oil? Have you thought about design? We must take people to Jesus. Then thirdly, he calls them to respond. He says, verse 36, because you crucified Jesus, this Jesus whom you crucified. He calls them to repentance, verse 38. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. And he shares with them new life, verses 38. The end part of that in 39, he said, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you. He urges them, verse 40, save yourselves. And as we share, as we, we must call people to respond. 
I remember a friend of mine was on a team with Fred Williams, who used to be a beach mission leader, he's in glory now. And, and this friend described they, they were on the promenade, and it was a damp evening, and it was windy, and Fred's preaching, and the team are standing round, and they're looking at their feet, and Fred is going on and on. And everyone's looking at one another and thinking, supper, come on, supper. And then Fred winds up his talk, and no one is there, and he starts offering John's Gospels. You know, if you've heard, you'd like to respond. And there's looks from team members to team members of just thinking, what on earth are we doing? And then everyone else was ashamed, because a lady had been sitting down on the beach with her back to get towards the prom wall, and she came up and heard every word of Fred's sermon, asked for John's gospel, and Fred led her to the Lord Jesus. Sometimes we never ask, do we? We never push people and say, you know, in our Britishness, our Englishness, we're just sometimes too polite, aren't we? Three key steps that Paul and Peter both took in preaching the gospel. They started where people were, they took them to Jesus, and they called them to respond. We need to make sure we take people to Jesus, don't we? Not just the apologetics. And do we urge people to trust him? And then lastly, the method. How the church reaches a lost world. We, we see in this passage that Acts 2 gives us an amazing picture of the church in action. We see this high-impact, radical community that is living so differently. We see the new church before history and traditions of the church have messed things up. And it's so interesting to take a big picture of the church in Acts chapter 2. So what do we see? I think we see three distinct areas of ministry. And the first one is this. If we can uh, press it again. Yeah. Um, what we find is, Acts, in Acts 42 it says that they... Verse 42, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, we know from some other verses in Acts that basically this took place, uh, you can find in chapter 5, verse 12, took together in Solomon's portico. And uh, it was an area, that's an artist's impression. It's reckoned 10,000 people could have gathered in that area. And um, here was this church, 3,120 they weren't going to fit into anyone's house, were they? They had to be this central place. And it says they devoted themselves to the teaching. And then secondly, verse 46, we find that they met together in people's houses, where they encouraged one another. It says they met together daily. They had fellowship. They shared meetings, shared meals. And, and they met together, encouraged one another. And in a sense, that's the small group, isn't it? You know, home groups and things like that. But then thirdly, we see in this passage, they went out into the highways and the byways. They went out into the streets to share the gospel. It was the passion of Jesus, wasn't it? To go out, to meet people where they were, on neutral ground, on hillsides, in marketplaces, in, in wherever they were. That's where Jesus went, wasn't it? It's where the apostles went. Remember at a pastor's conference and we were talking about evangelism and, and one pastor of a big church said, well, he said, our problem is we never see anyone come in. 
And uh, I said, I'm not sure we meant to. <laughs> we meant to go out. And, and I think that's part of the problem of our English church culture. People are still expecting people to come to church, to come in and hear the gospel. They're not, they, they'll come if they're brought. But before that, we've got to go out to share the gospel. We need our open airs and market stores and door-to-door and, and barbecues and restaurants. When, when our little church started, two guys got together and they said, you know, getting people to come to a meal at church is very difficult, but if we hired a restaurant, I think people would come. And so these two guys went and found a, a low-cost, sort of semi-backstreet restaurant. Midweek, it was a takeaway with a restaurant on the side. Midweek, there's no in there. And they went and they cut a deal. And they said, you know, we'll hire the restaurant out. And they paid the whole amount of money. And they just went to their Christian friends and said, look, you can come. We'd love you to come, but you have to bring a non-Christian friend. And they packed it out. And after the first one, another couple of guys came along. They, By the way, they didn't spend ages trying to get it through, you know, the church leadership team and debating and discussing it. They just did it. They just went and hired it. And, and they said, it's just us. And two guys came up and said, well, how's it funded? And they said, well, we sort of do it, you know. It costs £300, and so that's a, do it every six weeks. That's £50 a week. That's £25 a week each. And two of the guys said, well, count us in. That's £12.50 a week. <laughs> a lot of people could do that, couldn't they? And pretty soon, that's carried on. About every six weeks, a restaurant full of people, always more than 30, often more than 40, And always more than half the people there aren't Christian. And some have come to faith. Some came to faith and came to a stranger course and 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 even a year after they become a Christian, they still hadn't come to church. Right? But for various reasons. There are just things going on in people's lives. We need to go out. But if you look at that that uh, picture there, what's the number one? place of emphasis in the church today and uh, if you click it yeah so that's number one what's number two church is sort of in the last 20 30 years has got into small groups but what's the area that's really really missing in our church lives in our it's number three isn't it going out and you know The church can have three responses, and and you and I can have three responses to reaching a lost world. Number one, we can say, well, let's separate. Let's put fences up. Let's draw the drawbridge up. Let's have cosy Christian communities. I call it jacuzzi Christianity. Just massaged by a million bucks. Let's have a nice, lovely music, lovely coffee, nice biscuits. But it's for us. It's jacuzzi Christianity, isn't it? The other response can be accommodation. Let's compromise to reach the world. Let's become, let's become like the world to reach the world. But what's it teaches in Acts? I believe it teaches us that we have to have engagement. We need to be morally distinct, but not socially segregated. Morally distinct, but not socially segregated. To be in the world, but not of it. And some say things are getting worse. And I guess they are. But you know, we live in the times of the greatest gospel opportunity ever. We do. 
There are more people living today than have ever died. That's amazing. Uh, And you can check it out. I heard it and I thought, no. But check it out. There's more people living today. You look at the population growth. We're living in the times of the greatest gospel opportunity ever. And the opportunity in tough times is for Christians to live distinctively different because the world has shifted so far. I think it's a tremendous opportunity. Christians can shine, can't they? I heard the story recently of a, of a young lady who went to a medical clinic in Bolivia. She was a Christian lady. And it turned out the clinic was full of corruption. It carried out illegal abortions. And she was unlikely to get another job. But she wrote a letter of resignation. She just thought, I cannot carry on here. A few days after she posted the letter to the owner, she got a call. And he said this. He said, I do not accept your resignation. Would you please stay? I said, I want you to become the director of the clinic because I've seen the way that you coped with criticism and the pressure uh, on you. And I just want you to run this clinic. And she changed everything. Are we regularly going out with the gospel? Roger talked about tracks in it. Yeah, it's so important, isn't it? Are we just prepared? And we're ready. Are we engaging with the world rather than separating or compromising? And are we living morally distinct lives? The power of the gospel is able to transform whole communities. And the challenge is to be Acts 2 Christians and Acts 2 churches. This church was radical. It was different. It was out there. It was engaging. It was in the community. Looked at four things. The moment, the beginning of the church, God is sovereign, isn't he? His timings are perfect. We can trust him. We looked at the man God uses, the messenger. He's not limited who he uses. He can use you. He can use me. I kind of think, what am I doing up here after Roger spoke this morning and and Peter spoke last night? But God can take us and use us, can't he? The message is the most important message, isn't it? We need to share this, starting where people are. And the method, how the church reaches a lost world. We need to have biblical methods and venture some faith as we share the gospel. But the last thing is this, is me. Where am I in this passage? Where are you? Do we just come to this and say, oh, this is an interesting passage? Or do we say, do you know, I want to be, I want to be there where they were. I want to be engaging with the world. I want to be living a distinctly different, morally courageous life of venturesome faith. I want to be sharing the gospel in that way. Close with this. Howard Guinness wrote a little book called Sacrifice in 1936. It was reprinted by Young Life in 1987. And he says this. He says, where are the young men and women of this generation who will hold their lives cheap and be faithful even unto death, who will lose their lives for Christ, flinging them away for love of him. Where are those who will live dangerously and be reckless in this service? Where are the men of prayer and women? Where are the men who count God's word of more importance to them than their daily food? Where are the men who, like Moses of old, commune with God's face, commune with God face to face, as a man speaks with his friends, 
Where are God's men in this day of power?